Well, good morning to everybody. What a joy to be here with, uh, with you today. It's always a thrill for me to get called up from the reserves and be able to serve this church. And so I want to thank many of you for your thoughts and your prayers and your words of encouragement through this past week. And I would have to say it's been a joy to be the recipient of the labors of other men at this church these last few weeks. And I think most of you would agree with me. It's a it's a wonderful thing to have a strong and vibrant pulpit ministry. It's a, it's a much needed thing in the world today. It's a much needed thing in the churches today and we have that blessing of having it here. And I'm also looking forward to the return of Pastor Scott and our time in Ephesians. And before we get started today, I'd like to turn to the Lord in prayer and seek his will for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful, Lord, that today at the end of July, the month went so fast, Father, but looming before us is school and activities and ministries and, and many things that continue on. And, and yet we had this time of period and rest, but Father, we know, Lord, that the labor, your labors, our labor in the vineyard is, is always going on. And so we pray, Father, that this weekly Sunday, this, this day a week, that we would rest, recharge, we would come and worship and praise and honor of you, Lord that it would give us the strength and the understanding, Lord, that we need to go out those doors seeking the lost. Lord, we, we desire, Father, to know you and to know you more and pray, Lord, that this message today, that this passage would grip our hearts as it has mine and give us the strength, Father, to have the confidence that you are God and, and that you are ultimately bringing your sheep home. We love you, Lord Jesus. We praise you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was asked to preach, I had this passage in the forefront of my mind, and I knew right where I wanted to go. I had the opportunity to study this passage over the last few months in a great depth, and my discoveries were so impactful, and I knew I was excited that if given the opportunity uh, to share it with you, it was, it was deeply on my heart. I wanted to do that with you. And so here, I want to share it with you today. So uh, I want you to turn to the book of Psalms. If you need a Bible, there should be one under your seat to the left or to the right. And you're going to open midway through your Bible. And uh, you're going to turn to approximately around page 458, 458 in the Pew Bibles where Psalm 23 is. Psalm 23. And so while you turn to it, I just want to give you a little brief history behind the book of Psalms or a brief thought on the book of Psalms. It's considered the songbook of a nation. The songbook of a nation. These are beautiful hymns from the people of God to God. From the people of God to God. They're songs that God has used to determine a human God relationship, a divine human encounter. And we understand that, right? That the Lord has given us his word so that we may encounter him. Whether it be in his creation, we can encounter him. Among his people, we can encounter him. But what's most amazing is we have the simplicity of the word of God where we can experience that divine human encounter. And so we have to understand when we turn to the Psalms, not only are we interacting with God, these Psalms provide for us a sanctuary, a place of close communion with God. It is here in the Psalms we can be honest with God. We can express our most heartfelt desires. We can express our most deepest needs and sometimes even our greatest fears. All of these things can be put on display in the book of Psalms. And that's what makes the Psalms so great. They speak for us. The rest of the Bible speaks to you, whether it be a narrative explaining to you something happening and that God is bringing along or in the epistles, a way to behave or apply Christian morality or ethics, but here in the Psalms, they speak for us. Lament, praise, worship, pain, sorrow, these are all found in the Psalms, and they speak for us to God, and they cover all aspects of our life. I would say one of the most important things that I've learned from the book of Psalms is it takes what I understand to be objective truth, and it takes what I understand as my personal experience, my understanding or an interaction with something of truth. And it takes those two things, what we would see or maybe the world would see as polar opposite, truth and the human experience, and it blends those together. It closes those gaps of our emotions and our thoughts, and it directs it towards God. And so I want to bring you here to this psalm 
to the center of your Bible. I want God to be the center of our lives today. I want you to be in a comfortable spot in the Bible, and I want you to be on familiar ground. Because here, this psalm begs a question, a very, very important question. What is it that comes to your mind when you think of God? What is it that comes to your mind when you think of God? This is a very, very important question. You see, what we think of God is probably the most telling thing about us. It's the most telling thing about us. In some conversations, to simplify this, you're going to hear two views of God expressed mostly in the Christian paradigm. You're going to hear the idea of a high view of God and a low view of God. A high view of God and a low view of God. And just to get right to the point, here at Grace Church of the Valley, we want a high view of God. Our desire is to think the most lofty, highest thoughts we can of God. You see, the low view of God, I present, would be very, very detrimental to your spiritual health. It reminds me of a condition that I heard one time, and since we seem to have babies coming in multiplicities, I remember studying the idea of failure to thrive. It's the idea of malnourishment in children. It's the idea of not receiving enough nourishment. It's tied to what nourishment there is, it's insufficient. A low of you, God, is insufficient. And if one hold, holds that view, do not expect to thrive and grow and strengthen your spiritual walk. Because one believes someone with a low view of God, in one way or another, some of these similars, and I try to condense them to give kind of an overview of what a low view of God would present. Someone would believe in this low view that God is somehow in some manner incapable or restricted. Or God is somehow, some manner, dependent on something else to incur. There's a reaction that must occur before he reacts. Or God isn't quite sure what's going to happen next. He's veiled in some way to something else. These views, one compiled and built into a human understanding of who God is, leaves one looking for answers, help, provision, and protection from something other than God. Something other than God. And same as nourishment is critical for the growth of a small child, so a high view of God is critical to the child of God. A deep, strong, and robust understanding of God, I propose, is probably one of the most important things you can pass down to your children. And if it's not for children, it's one of the most important things that you yourself can enactuate in your life to pursue the most deepest, greatest understanding of God in your personal study. In A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of Holy, one of my most favorite books, I, whenever people come to my house, I hand it out. He addresses this right in the first chapter, and I, I, I love the way he says this. He writes, a right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple. Where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. I believe there's scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to the imperfect or incorrect thoughts of God. Where would we go to a place in Scripture that would get us on the right gradient? Where could we go in Scripture a hymn of confidence, an understanding, a baseline, a plumb line, a, where in the, all of the entirety of Scripture do you think we could go to make sure that we're on a trajectory to hold the highest view of God possible? Well, right here in Psalm 23. There's a reason this psalm is the most memorized and rehearsed psalm in the Bible because David establishes a baseline for all believers at any age, at any time, and for any reason. It's how we are to think of God, and if your heart's desire today is to have a high view of God, or you say, I want to grow in my understanding of who God is and how I can hold the depth and understanding so it makes a very, very important impact in my life, then let's turn right here to Psalm 23. Let's go no further. Psalm 23, follow along as I read the six verses. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. In 57 Hebrew words, David gives us the person that we can fixate our gaze upon. Our eyes and thoughts are lifted to the one who provides and protects in this day and age even. In these psalms, these words have become a soft landing for many, many shipwrecked souls, and they've dried many, many tears in the middle of the night. One commentator, J.J. Stewart Perone, observed that there is no psalm in which the absence of all doubt, all misgiving, all fear, and anxiety is so remarkable. So I want to take you into this psalm. We're only going to cover the first four verses concerning the good shepherd. We're going to look at the good good shepherd, and we will discover who this person is and how he provides for us and how he protects us. So that'll be our outline. Simply enough, if you have your thing and you want to follow along with the outline, the outline would look like this. His person, verse 1, his provision, verse 2 and 3, and his protection, verse 4. Leave some space in those lines. We have some area to fill in there as well. But again, his person, verse 1, his provision, verse 2 and 3, and his protection, verse 4. It's amazing. What is it usually we want to first learn about a person? When we meet someone new, what is the very, usually the very first thing we get to know about this person? It's their name. We want to know their name. And inherent in their name, it gives us the start to form an understanding of who that person is or what their character is like. And I want you to know, when we look at the verse one, the Lord is my shepherd, we are given his name. Now, it took a little while for me to understand this because when they teach you in any good seminary, you look for the verb. You look for where the action is. And lo and behold, I searched and I searched and I could not find it in verse one. Yet our English Bible gives us the verb. You see it there, the Lord is. It's a state of being our shepherd. And with that, immediately your thoughts are catapulted vertical. If this was a roller coaster, David in writing that psalm takes your understanding and he casts it as far as he can up. Because the first thing he wants you to look at is his name. He wants you to look at the person of God, the covenant God of Israel, and he gives you his name and he sends it high into the sky. It jettisons us upward. It takes all the issues that you've had this week, that you've had this morning, you leave those below, and I want you to begin to entertain and understand the lofty thoughts of God that are found in his name. And so that's our first subpoint. The person of God is revealed in his name. What makes this so amazing is when you take that verb out and you try to lead it, read it very literal in the Hebrew text, it says, the Lord, my shepherding one, the one shepherding me. Many commentaries, they casually read this or they jump ahead and they want to focus on the idea of the fact of shepherding and that is not the main point of the whole psalm. The whole psalm is main point found in the Lord. They try to talk about shepherding, agrarian societies, debating the correct methods of animal husbandry, but David is simply beginning the psalm off by pointing to God. David rightly gives us the name of God first and thereby starts us on the right course. So what is his name? What is his name? Well, we need to turn to Exodus 3. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. And we're going to read the first time his name is revealed by himself in Scripture. Exodus chapter 3, look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. Here we have a dialogue between Moses 
and God, and Moses is receiving his marching orders. He has a mission to go to the people of Israel and to tell them that salvation is coming. Salvation is coming. And look at verse 13 in Exodus chapter 3. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? He's asking a simple question. I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to tell all these elders and all these people that me showing up out of nowhere, that their salvation's coming, and by the way, this, this guy told me. This person told me. I need your name. Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God, furthermore, in verse 15, said to Moses, thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. And that's his name. Now, what's so amazing, from our systematic theology classes here at At Grace Church of the Valley, we had studied this, and we understand that the name I Am speaks directly to usually, when you you look through any type of of commentary, it's one of first of God's incommunicable, incommunicable attributes. And that is means these are attributes not shared with us. These are His. These are His priority and His alone. This attribute would also be known as His self-existence or his independence. And what all that means for us today is that God needs nothing to exist. He is the source, the origin of all things. His name is the center of all existence that we know. And I understand this, and you should understand this, because out of it, it means to be. It means you could put any time frame to any of the way he discloses his name, and it still doesn't change. I was who I was. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And what's interesting is most times it's translated, I will be who I will be, because that name, they understand whatever instances and aspects and things that happen in your life are a result of the existence of God. God is, was, will be the existent one. His whole identity is wrapped up in the name. I will be what I will be. All being is contained in him. One commentator said, he is a boundless ocean of being. This is, this is high stuff. I sat and studied this and kind of went around in circles and circles and circles and said, I, I need a way to wrap my, my arms around an all-existent being. If there was only just a simple, practical way. Well, turn back to Exodus chapter 3, and I found it there. How can I better understand this? Look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Actually, look down to verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Verse 3, so Moses said, I I must turn aside. I I must now see this, this marvelous sight that the bush is not burned up. What flame needs no fuel? What, what type of physical property could sit there and burn and not consume? We understand fires, don't we? I never understood fires until I moved to California. Those things are terrible. They consume everything. We were just up north and we came back through Shaver and I had never been up there and I saw just a, a, a landscape that has been plumaged and ravaged by fire, consuming. But what's so amazing is when you want a picture of who God is and how he exists, he is a flame that does not need a fuel. This flame needs no fuel. And you can almost imagine Moses in his bewilderment. He he needs nothing to exist, nothing to survive, nothing to live, to thrive. He exists sincerely only by his nature. So what does that have to do with you and me? 
Well, we've jettisoned ourselves way up and we've grabbed this lofty thought of God that needs nothing to exist. He needs nothing outside of him. And we're sitting there and we peek over our right shoulder and we look down to our lives. Do we not have needs? Every day we need something. Every day we, we come to the understanding that we need things. We need substance. We need to do this. We need to follow this. We need to understand this. We need food. We need water, shelter. But God has no needs. We recently went camping, as I was saying, and when we packed, it seemed like we packed forever to go all the way up there camping. And we get up there, and I just start unpacking. And no sooner do I get everything unpacked because we need all this stuff. You never know what's going to happen. And the other family and I that were up there, I think that both of our things combined, we could have fed a small army for a whole month. And no sooner did I get unpacked, I had to turn around and pack it back out. I never went camping. Rachel and I went packing for a whole week. Our needs are so great, and, and we can fixate on these things, and we can become, begin to strive and to strain, and our, and our lives become unsettled, and, and we lose an element of our peace. But not so with David here. This is a psalm of confidence. This is a, this is a rest reassurement. He takes us right to the person we need to see, and he gives us a name, and he uses the covenant name of Israel, a name that means boundless and all-encompassing and has no need. And he says, look at the second part of verse 1, I shall not want. You see, this whole psalm is tied to the fact of God's character. And everything from that point continues to point up. You could say, because the Lord is the one shepherding me, I can make a resultive statement and say, I shall not want. And everything that follows after that is a cause. I shall not want. What's interesting, this one catches you up a little bit because most translations will all say, I want. But I think the Christian Standard Bible did a better job here. And it says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. As of the result of the Lord God shepherding David, he can say these words, I shall not want. Oh, what a feeling to wake up and say, I, I don't need anything. I don't need anything to have all your needs met. And we do have needs, as we've said. Some of you are probably saying, well, that'll never happen. Is that true? Is it true that your needs will never be met? We have to be careful here because we don't want to assign a responsibility to God that is not his. And we can do this. We can rightly navigate and rightly divide this. But here's the big difference. Here's the key to unlocking this little portion. We have to be careful. There's a big difference between need and want. Need and want. He's not saying you won't have desires. He's not saying that there are things that you, you lay your eye on and you say, I, I'd like to obtain this. What David is simply saying here is that all my needs on this earth will be met. There's a saying that helps us with this little bit. It says there is what we need, there is what we think we need, and there is what God knows we need. Can I say that all your needs will be met and look you in the eye and tell you all your needs will be met? Yeah, David does. In Psalm 37, 25, just listen, I, this is what he says, I've been young and now I'm old. He has life behind him to look. And he says, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. He doubles down, not because of wishful thinking, but because he knows the source of all his needs. His name are needs. The one who needs nothing. Listen to Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. The Apostle Paul understands this as well. He says, the God who made the world and all things in it, that's Psalm 24 too, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So the question is, why do we fret? The question is, why do we worry? Some of you might be saying, hey, are you watching the news? Do you not see mortgage rates are going up, pricing, this and that, shelves are bare, 
The supply chain's messed up. Yeah, it is. But why do we worry? The Lord's very clear all through Scripture, don't. But why do we? Could it be because we don't want what we need? We want our desires. May I even use the word lust? We lust after things. We disregard that our needs are being met by God, and we look at what we don't have, and we say, I'm not satisfied. I'm not satisfied. Listen to James 4. James chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. There's our English understanding of want right there. But that's not what David's talking about. He's talking about our needs, that our needs will be met and that they're a primary concern of God. When we rest in this psalm and we capture our understanding of what God does, we can say with David, I shall not want, that our needs are being met. You see, our understanding on needs needs to change. Our focus needs corrected, and God will do that for us. And by placing our eyes solely on him, our wants and desires soon change, and now they are for him and his glory. In 2 Peter, it says, seeing that his divine power has granted us to everything pertaining to life and godliness. You have everything you need in this life. I recognize there are some with much more than others. I understand that. But so does God. He's the one that distributes it. And so when we understand that the Lord has promised to provide all that we need, we began to take that lofty thought of God and it begins to change the heart. That's what a high view of God does. At this point, some of you are saying, I, I want to believe, but it's difficult. We want to be in this place with this understanding and this, this, this development. I know it's hard to come by because of frustration that this world gives. Fathers, it seems when you finally made that big step in your career and your business, only see it taken away. Mothers, all week you've labored and strived and worked and worked and worked and you get to the end of the week and the laundry is just even higher. Teens, when you go to school and it seems like that person over there has everything. Grandparents, when the turn of events have made the golden years harder, you thought it would be easier. You don't think God understands? Well, he does. He understands and he gives us four reasons why he is the one who provides. He is the one who provides. Looking at chapter, or looking back at Psalm 23, verses two and three, he begins, a series of four statements. You could take the English word and put it right before this and say, because he, because he leads me, because he restores, and because he guides. And these are all explanations and reasons for why you shall not want. They all begin with the word he, he but what's also amazing is that they all support the statement, I shall not want. And he uses... He uses the shepherding imagery. There's no need to camp on these four, but I'd like to call each one of them out and move through them to get an idea of how he uses these to explain that our needs are being met. And before I do that, I just want to share with you, this psalm had so much impact on me because I was raised on a larger farm that dealt with sheep commercially. I was raised for the good portion of my life as a young man. You could say my dad was a shepherd. And for a long time, many of my summers, all the way up to my preteen years or teen years, I helped look after a fairly significant size herd of sheep. I spent many summers during the lambing season or during different seasons moving what we would uh, take from one pen or pasture to another. I had many uh, times during the lambing season, season giving birth or seeing uh, ewes give birth to sheep and taking care of them. And so all of these I, I started to read and it brought back a flood of memories. But one memory 
sticks out. And when we look at verse 2, he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. And I want to share this one memory. It was a Sunday morning. And all of a sudden, we awoke to a large, or a, to a loud sound of dogs barking, many dogs, or multiple dogs. The interesting thing is we didn't have any dogs. And we heard these dogs. And then we heard the crash of a gate. And, and our family arose up on Sunday morning. And we raced down outside into the yard to see two large, beautiful German shepherds who had just discovered our herd. And they were running these sheep from one end of the farm to the other, chasing them. And the more the dogs chased, the more the sheep got excited. And the more the sheep got excited and frightened, the more aggressive the dogs become. I'll never forget, puffs of wool were just floating in the air as the dogs would attack and just bring little puffs of wool up into the air. It was just crazy. And I remember as my father and my siblings, we helped shoo them away, scare them away. We, we brought the sheep into the barn to get an idea of, of what the damage was. That the sheep, they, they all had their tongue hanging outside their mouth. Sheep are utterly exhausted. They're so easily frightened when you try to corner them that they'll run full speed and they'll cast themselves against a fence or a gate or a wall to get away. I just remember the, the look on my dad's face. He's trying to figure out what's happened to this, this herd and what kind of damage we have. There was blood, there was wool, and they were utterly exhausted. Now think of that image and look at verse 2. This is what this shepherd does. He makes me lie down in green pastures. First of all, the emphasis is on him. He makes me lie down in green pastures. But the idea here is of rest. Rest. You're given rest. And it's a beautiful thing because it's green pastures, the idea of a young pasture. When you graze intensive grave sheep, the first thing they eat is the freshest, newest stuff. And you can tell what the pasture health looks like because what's left is the stuff they don't want to eat. And here what he's saying is, God takes you to rest in abundance and new growth. He gives you rest. What's also interesting is not only do you need food, but you need water. Look the next part down in chapter two or verse two. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Again, the emphasis is placed on who is doing the leading? The good shepherd. He is. Not only do sheep need rest, but the idea here is next to that pasture of a haven of rest and new grass. You have a small stream, not a raging stream, not something that would carry the sheep away, but they can easily access water. No turbulent water, no raging waters, no raging rivers, but ample streams. So they have rest, and now they have refreshment. So there's your second point, rest, refreshment. The Lord is providing rest and refreshment. Well, those first two, this is usually where the psalm kind of starts to move a little bit under your feet. I get it. I get it. You're providing rest, refreshment, food. I get it. These are basics. But look at here at verse 3. Restoration, he restores my soul. At this point, you should start to say, I don't think David's talking about animal husbandry strictly. I don't think David is trying to explain to me that, that all uh, my material understanding of life is going to be taken care of. No. David isn't talking about grocery bills or mortgage payments. In this verse, he uses the same word for repentance. He restores my soul. You could read it this way, and because the emphasis stays on he, it says, he exceedingly refreshes my soul, my being, my entirety. He exceedingly restores my soul. He causes my soul to turn. He causes my soul to repent. He provides repentance. This isn't foreign to Scripture. And this continues to build. But I want you to understand in 2 Timothy chapter 2 to the elders, he's talking, Paul's talking about what an elder should look like, but he's also saying the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps, here it is, that God may grant them repentance. That's a big deal. There's nothing harder in life than to turn your own life around. You can't do it. And when he says, you restore my soul, he's laying the charge directly on the good shepherd and says, you have turned my life around. 
You've brought repentance onto me. For what? Look at verse three as he continues. For he guides me in the path of righteousness. He guides me in the path of righteousness. At this point, you should start to see that there's a, a transition has happened here. One has found the rest that they much needed. No longer racing back and forth across the pasture of life, being pursued by this world, but one now finds rest and restoration. One finds themselves being refreshed by eternal waters, waters of extreme significance, waters that actually mean something. Repentance of the soul, a recognition of who you are. And finally, he places them on clear, well-laid-out tracks. You could use that word here, tracks of righteousness. The idea, the imagery, is that he takes you and he puts you on the track of righteousness. Now, that's a neat little thing there, verses 2 and 3, but I simply ask you, what is the sheep's responsibility? What job did the sheep have in any of that? None. It's not the responsibility of the sheep to find its own rest. It's not the sheep's job to search high and low for refreshment. It's not the sheep's job to restore its own life, nor is it the sheep's job to develop its own path of righteousness. David is simply saying here is all of these things are held beautifully underneath I shall not want because they're a gift of God. What do we call that? That's his grace. His grace manifest in a shepherd image, giving everything needed for survival, not just survival, but to thrive and to grow. To be able to have the confidence and the ability to speak boldly and plainly for Christ in the social sphere comes from this passage. All our needs are both met physically, spiritual, yes, and why does he do this? Because you're all wonderful sheep? No, Look at the bottom of verse three, for his name's sake. Back to his name, full circle. Why does God do these things for you? Because you're the center? Because you're the all-existent one? No, it's inherent in his name. You need his name. You need to know all about him. You need to understand who he is. It's his name. Some might be saying, okay, I, I, I pick up what you're laying down, I get it. But you don't understand. We are facing serious, serious issues. We are facing hard issues of life, pastor. There's disease, possibly. There's been a disaster. Some intense emotional pain. Maybe some of you are entertaining the thoughts of death. Well, David continues this journey in verse four, and he says, I want you to see God. I want you to think high and mighty of his name, and I want you to see his ultimate protection. His protection. Verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This should give you an, a hint right away. David is not just some passionate idealist. He could, he could have wrote this psalm and just said, yep, 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 you're taken care of. Good luck with that. No, he's honest with himself. He's honest with you. He's honest with the reader. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there's a realism there. Is it not? Do you not all face something of great and, and hard issues? Many debate this particular verse, and I think it's probably because no one likes to read the idea that part of your life will be in a valley of darkness under the shadow of death. Some say, well, look, look, it's just a period of darkness in one's life, or maybe it's a low point in one's health, or maybe it's a threat of some external evil, or, or maybe it's just only ultimate death and separation from this world. Yes, 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 and yes. It's all of those things, don't we understand? We understand that when he talks about even though I walk, it's encompassing your life. And then when it talks about through the valley of the shadow of death, that encompasses your life as well. Don't we understand that all men are under the curse of sin, unto death and life, Romans 
But what we really need to do is stop and observe, not this in the verse of singularity, but where it falls in the whole psalm. Look right above. Did we not just proclaim that God's provision would lead us on paths of righteousness? Didn't it start on paths of righteousness? And now David says, I started on paths of righteousness even though I walked through the valley of death, the shadow of death. If he's going to place you on that path, he's going to take you wherever it will go. What's amazing is you have to understand a sheep sits about three and a half feet lower than the vision of a shepherd. Your perspective is ultimately lower and clouded and shrouded by the human understanding. But the shepherd stands high. And what he has started on a path of righteousness just might be to you a valley of darkness. He recognizes that. It's still a path of righteousness to the shepherd. And what does he say? He says, I fear no evil. He understands that from the shepherd's perspective, it is all being looked after. The Lord knows it all and nor he needed anything. But when I read this, I'm a human and I wanna know, are you there with me? Are you experiencing this with me? Can you see, God, that I am in a valley of darkness can, can, you, can you feel, can you empathize? You can see it come out in David because he switches talking about God and saying he in the third person and now he switches to the second person. He says, for I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. David can't contain it himself either. He has to recognize that the shepherd is in fact the Lord God. And you are with me. What began as a path of righteousness, went, went through the valley of darkness, terminates in the most greatest statement we could make. You're with me, O Lord. You're with me. He talks with him. And how? This is so amazing as well. How, how does David know that God's with him in these patterns of life, in these periods of life? He uses the idea of discipline. He protects our walk with his discipline. <laughs> Wait, are you, saying, like, are you saying that we're supposed to look for God's discipline in our life as an understanding that he's walking with us? Yes. Look at the shepherd's tools. Your rod and your staff he gives two different names, two different words for two, two different utensils, and these are the instrument of God's discipline. The first one, a rod, is actually for protection of the sheep. This is something, a small club, you would, you would, you would hit an attacker away with it. What he's saying is, I'm providing protection for you against those that want to harm you. You are my sheep, and that is a wolf, and I want to push them away. The second instrument is a staff, and we all know a staff, you see that large shepherd's crook and has a curved angle. Do you know how you use that? Whenever a sheep is going astray, you take it, you turn it around, you grab its neck, and you just put it back up right onto the path again. These are both correctionary items, one for the attacker and one for the sheep. But you're probably thinking, well, you're still saying that the Lord protects us by disciplining us? Are we to then to live in the constant fear of this type of punitive action? Well, to be honest with you, fear is a healthy motivator. But look what David says. Your rod and your staff, they do what? They comfort me. It's the most greatest gift we could receive as sheep to be on the pathway of righteousness than to be corrected and placed back on it. For if he did not correct you and he did not discipline you and he did not bring people into your life to speak truth to you and he did not bring you every day, every Sunday here to hear the word of God being poured into your heart and into your mind so that you would understand where to go and what to do, you're not his child. You're not his child. His discipline is a great, great gift. It's the fuel for our belief, and a father chastens whom he loves, right? 
Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. For those whom he, the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Real simply, scourge is not comfortable. Scourge is not a good feeling. Verse 7, and it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, all which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits? And then he says, and live? Question mark. Here it is in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 12. For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, the good shepherd, disciplines us so that we may share in his holiness. Do you want things from the path of righteousness to rub off on you? Do you want a little bit of righteousness mud to to fly up and splash in your face? We'll be under the rod of correction. Be thrust down into the path. Recognize your sin and your fault and cry out to God to restore you. That's what discipline does. Now you have to understand, we're gonna end here at verse four. But at this point, when you look at David's history when he writes this, things are actually going really well. Things are going really well. All the run-ins with Saul have been laid to rest and all those people that had followed Saul have now pledged their allegiance to David. He's just moved the capital city to Jerusalem and he's forming the nation state of Israel in which he will be king. He's looking forward with high hopes to establish the temple. It's in his heart. It's a burning desire. Lord, I want to build you a temple. And in the meantime, he's taking the tabernacle, the pre-temple, and he's moving it to Jerusalem. All is well. All is well. He's got some years under his belt. He writes this psalm. He understands the provisions of God. He knows of the hills and valleys. He understands that he had nothing before when he was a shepherd boy, and now he's the king of a great nation. And how did his life continue? He faced some terrible, terrible things. Committed adultery. Lost a child. Had a son bring out one of the most greatest insurrections and rebellions against his own kingdom, and then only to see his best lieutenant slay him in a tree after he told him, don't kill my son. So I don't think it's wise only to sit in camp that you think, you know what, I heard today that the Lord will meet my basic needs. Great, let's go to lunch. No. David understood that the greatest provision, the greatest protection, and the greatest thought that you can have is that the shepherd gives you a new heart. More valuable than all things this world has to offer, more important than our physical well-being is your relationship with God, and your relationship with God is directly impacted to what you know about him. Our our shepherd gives us rest from the strain and the labor of self-righteousness. Our shepherd refreshes us from the springs of the waters of eternal life. Didn't Jesus say that to the woman at the well? I have this water that you want to drink of. Our shepherd brings us to repentance when we refuse to acknowledge our own sinful behavior and restores us. And our shepherd takes us up out of the mire and places us on a pathway of righteousness paved with his own. The question is, this is a great psalm in the ancient Near East. Covenant Lord, I get it. David, he's a king from way, way, way long ago. But I still have doubt. Who? Who? Is is this my shepherd? Way back here in the book of Psalms, who's my shepherd? Casey, tell me, who's my shepherd? We'll turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10. The Gospel of John, chapter 10. Look, behold with your own eyes the great mystery. The great mystery. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, starting down at verse 11. Who's speaking? 
Jesus. He's talking to those who would deny his existence as God. They rejected to believe that he himself could take away your sins. In verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. In one statement, he just infuriates those that are around him. In one statement. But he makes the claim, rightly, that he is our good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, he owns them, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them up and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Verse 14, he says it again. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the father, there's a relationship there tied to the intrinsic name of I am. Even as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Pastor Tom read that, that section from Ezekiel and that's such a beautiful section of Ezekiel speaking to this very thing of what Jesus would say. Jesus is your shepherd. And he would know because from his perspective he was once a lamb He once walked on this earth, saw everything you see now today. The sin, the pain, the separation, the hurt, the trauma. But he was perfect and understands perfectly what it is you need. God sent the perfect lamb to live and die on your behalf so that you would have a perfect shepherd And because it's so hard to believe sometimes that God, yes, the infinite I am shepherds you, he sent his son to be an image. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Do you want to grasp lofty thoughts of God? Do you want to say, yes, I want to change, I want to leave here today, and I want to immediately think differently about God. I want to embrace all that he is and understand that everything that I have comes from him. How can I do it? Well, I'll tell you right now, the highest thought you could ever have of God is to recognize the personhood and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. See your shepherd. Think of your shepherd. Think high thoughts of your shepherd. And love him, love him. Let's pray together.